Welcome back to the Wrong Advice Podcast. I'm your host, John Picciuto, and I'm very excited to have the one and only Mr. Jason Yamas, the author of Tweaker World, on the podcast with us today. Jason, how are you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? I am very good. I am very excited for this conversation. I recently finished your book, and I am just very excited to have this conversation. Um, can you give a quick introduction to the listeners to who you are? Sure. I am a writer and actor living in Los Angeles. Uh, I went to NYU where I studied acting. Uh, I was a media producer for a decade or so before I became uh, a drug addict and then a drug dealer and uh, now a memoirist uh, about my time in crystal meth and sex addiction. Yeah. Um, so the book absolutely floored me blew me away i mean i learned a lot of things that i had no prior knowledge of i didn't know the depths of which um you know the meth addict uh, epidemic had infiltrated the gay community um the breadth of its devastation that it is doing to the community is is just staggering to me and, and something that i you know you say it in the book is completely and wholly um non-talked about um, and I'm super curious, you know, from sort of stage one, without giving away the entirety of your book, how does one go from NYU grad to meth addict, drug dealer, kingpin? You got it. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I do. I say in the book, uh, in heteronormative circles, finding crystal meth may be difficult, but in gay culture, it is a click away, especially on the West Coast, where it is far cheaper and thus far more predominant. Uh, and crystal meth is purchasable uh, on on your smartphone right now. You can just go on Grinder or Scruff or any of the hookup apps, and if you know the coded language that drug dealers use on there, um, which I go into length uh, in the book, not so as uh, to provide a tutorial as much <laughs> as, as a warning uh, and, uh, and a better understanding of what that is. Um, you know, it's so funny. Sorry, I, I tend to detour a bit, so forgive me. But, but ADHD was, is my middle name. It's quite all right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, the, so to, well, well, actually, you took me in another direction. But I was, um, I was taking Adderall, which I was probably not, uh, probably not required to take. Although I, I have slight ADHD, I was, I grew up not taking pharmaceuticals. Not that I have anything against it. You know, if you have a, some sort of chemical imbalance or if pharmaceuticals help you, and you take as prescribed, amen, do it. Um, it was, they weren't for me though. I took them purely to abuse them. Uh, I was a media producer after after graduating from NYU. I was a I am a type A personality, a perfectionist. I uh, I like uh, being extremely productive, and uh, Adderall is very helpful in that. I, I had never really experienced the Adderall craze, being that I studied acting. Uh, it was not I was not staying up, you know, writing papers and and needing to study for final exams in college. And I think that's where a lot of people experiment with Adderall and those types of stimulants. It just wasn't, it wasn't something that I had ever really messed with. So I hadn't tried Adderall until I was producing films, documentaries in the early 2010s. Uh, and somebody gave me a 10 milligram one when we were on a late shoot one day. And then 
I realized, wow, I can stay up all night. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what, what we're doing. And then I can, I can be editing into the night on, on this. And, and it just continued to, to grow out from there. Um, so to um, uh, the Adderall uh, ballooned into from 10 milligrams uh, a day to up to 120 milligrams a day over the course of a year and a half or two. And uh, then when I no, no longer could find Adderall, the, the dealer that was selling it to me, the friend who had a prescription that was shipping it to me, the, my prescription had run out early, and it all came crashing down at this moment where I had uh, an, a, an excessive amount of, of uh, film work to do. And so I had read this letter that a, a, a pediatrician had written, and was, I think I saw it on Facebook or some social media outlet. And, uh, the, the doctor in this letter who had written it to parents who were prescribing their children Adderall, arguing that essentially that it was the same thing as giving their children crystal meth. Of course, he was being hyperbolic. It's not exactly the same. They're both sure. amphetamines. One is, one is far more toxic and potent uh, than the other, uh, crystal meth being that. But I read this letter and thought, okay, well, I could just get crystal meth instead of the Adderall and, and it'll achieve the same thing. It's very pragmatic. Is, is, very, that, very that, pragmatic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, what's, what's even more deluded about a, uh, an addict's mind is that I told myself, well, if I just get this crystal meth, it'll last me this one week. And then after that, I'm not going to renew my prescription. <laughs> I'm going to just, I'm going to quit it. So, so I literally tell, told myself, oh, I, I have to buy crystal meth to get out of amphetamine addiction. Uh, and you know, this, these are the tricks that an addict's mind will play. Um, but so that's, that's ultimately how I, uh, went from a media producer to uh, a, a drug addict. Uh, the, the drug dealer, uh, the fall into being a drug dealer was is a whole other trajectory. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that I found probably most interesting about the book was, at times as you're like recounting your experiences through this world that you've infiltrated, dominated, and are now a huge, massive piece of, it felt like you were wrestling with the, the person, Jason, right? The addict with the character that you may or may not due to, you know, meth induced psychosis have created. And I found it very interesting because it, it almost seemed like you had that internal conflict the entire time, right? You were like, well, this will make for a great book or movie. So I, it'll allow me to justify all these things that I'm doing. And I'm wondering, you know, how close, you know, in terms of the timeline in which you're, you know, a drug dealer, did this, sort of reconcile itself with your own mind? Like, was it a very slow burn or was it almost immediate for you that you were like, I can just be two different people at the same time? Uh, it was, it was almost immediate for me. Um, but it was a, it was an act of desperation is what it was. I mean, it was an absolute bullshit justification. Um, but I was, before I was uh, a, a drug addict and then a drug dealer, I was a storyteller. I was a trained actor. I was somebody who wrote screenplays and who wrote plays and who dreamed of having a TV show one day, dreamed of writing a book one day. That's the identity I had formed in my, in my 20s and, and, uh, and to now all of a sudden be a degenerate addict, a junkie, this is not the identity I 
before, you know, I, I needed, I needed something to, to pull me back to, to be able to tell myself, okay, no, 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 I'm, I'm not this guy. I'm, 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 it's a role. I'm, I'm acting it. You know, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm doing method instead of method acting. I'm doing method writing. You, you become the, the character in the story, let it unfold around you. And now instead of me, me making dangerous choices, I'm, uh, I'm furthering the plot, you know, it's, it, uh, and listen, I don't think that, that I'm alone in, in finding this justification, especially in this day and age, um, where everybody's a, a fucking storyteller. We're all, we're all, we're all storytellers. We're all having imposter syndrome. We're all having main character syndrome. It's, um, and then ultimately I ended up having Truman Show syndrome, which is a whole other syndrome. Uh, yeah. That... Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I read a lot. I, I'm an avid reader. This is one of the more entertaining, wild, insane books I think I've ever... I, I kept catching myself finishing a chapter and being like, there's no fucking way he survives this. Having obviously known that you did, I was like, I just don't see how how you make it through. It just unhinged after unhinged after... And there's all of these like overwhelming situations where like the universe is saying, Jason, get the fuck out of here. And you're like, Oh, I just, you know, I think that was the other thing that struck me. So, you know, I'm straight. I don't have a very, you know, intimate knowledge of how gay culture works. Right. I didn't know that grinder was like, Oh, you just like put in a button and then you're having sex in 20 minutes. Like that blew my mind. I didn't know that was a thing. And then to couple that with, with drugs, I was just like, Jesus, I, it's just, it would just, I kept learning and being blown away chapter by chapter, which was just, it, it was an exceptional read. Um, that being said, there was also like, I was surprised by the amount of like tenderness and genuine care that came from a lot of the people that you made, uh, you know, you mentioned and talk about in the story because, and I don't know if that's like inherently because of the culture and you got, and, and like, you know, the community being more or less, um, a lot tighter, I guess, and, and more, you know, likely to look out for someone, but the, there was just so much tenderness with like, you know, people are falling out from G GBL, right. Uh, yeah. usage and stuff. It just like the care in which people would take with, with addicts would just like blew my mind. I, I mean, I know there's no real question there. It's just, it, it's one of those things where well, I, I, I just, I do have a comment about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, please. Wonder, I do wonder having grown up watching, uh, you know, media and films and TV, uh, that depict drug addiction. Um, I, I've all often wondered if the storyteller has just been lazy or if, uh, queer addiction does lend itself to um, to an abundance of, of care and looking out for one another because we're all in this addiction for similar reasons. Uh, you know, we, we all felt othered. We all felt made smaller by society. We all felt uh, you know shame or guilt around our orientation or our sexual identities uh, in various ways, you know, with various uh, differing backstories, uh, of course, but uh, the reason why we all ended up in Tweaker World is uh, similar, uh, and, and so I, I wanted, I noticed that, you know, I noticed that the people around me were um, humans. They were three-dimensional yeah. humans. They were not 
They were not simply junkies. They were not simply degenerates. They were not simply addicts. And I think uh, we, we get these images and it's just like, it's, it's, we, we do it with mental illness and we do it with addiction. We just put it over there and it's, it's a cliche. It's the guy that's yelling at you on the street from across the sidewalk. It's mm-hmm. the guy with the needle in his arm, you know, uh, drooling or, or uh, you know, stealing, stealing from your wallet, you know. Yes, those moments happen, but they are the theft and the deception and the, 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 the um, depression around all of that is very real. But uh, the reasons for it are just as real. And that's something that I really wanted to hone in on uh, with, with this and to show that addicts have a dimensionality to them. They're, it's not, they're not a monolith. Well, you, you did a, an exceptional job in, in articulating that. I thought the other thing that surprised me quite a bit was for the vast majority of the characters that are discussed in the book, the socioeconomic status for a lot of these people are incredibly high. You know, you're talking about very nice apartments and homes in the richest city in America in San Francisco. And that struck me because there was this duality between the addict and the addictive lifestyle of, oh, I'm going to stay up for seven days doing meth um, and eventually selling meth and, and all that goes into that. And then also the fact that it was just so wildly accepted as like almost a norm within the scene. Um, do you think there are specific pockets of this like tweaker world sort of community in each and every city, or is it um, like just prevalent across um yeah, it so it's, just growing. Is... It's, grow- it's growing um, across the Midwest and the East Coast. Um, yeah, dr- crystal meth is becoming cheaper and therefore more accessible. It is at its worst uh, domestically in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, both mm-hmm. of them are, are plagued with a crystal meth epidemic. Uh, the reason San Francisco is probably more of a portrait of it is because it's just a smaller city. And and uh, truly, uh, it, almost everybody in that world knows each other uh, if you're there for a year or longer. Uh, those that have been there for, for years and years that I that I would meet, and I, I'd say, oh, I met, I met Harry or I met uh, Nord today. And, and you'd say that to somebody else, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, we know Harry. We know yeah. you know, every, Well, that surprised me, too. That surprised me too, because you know the entirety of the novel is you meeting more and more people in the community, uh, in the drug trade, and everyone knew everyone. <laughs> I was like, "This is you know." It's... <laughs> the first thing I did when I when I when I uh, had the, my wherewithal back uh, after uh, about a year of sobriety, and I spent that first year just having nightmares every night about this world, and I knew it had to come out of me, even even though even though in the story. Uh, in my experience, I'm saying, yeah, I'm only here to make a movie. I'm researching a movie. I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm justifying it, which is absolute bullshit. But on the other side of it, I am a storyteller. Once I'm sober, you know, I'm back to being that person again. So there was, I did feel a responsibility to uh, make good on those promises that had once been justifications. And it, and my, my uh, subconscious would not have allowed me to do otherwise. The nightmares I was having were so vivid, and I finally just needed to get it all out of me. So the, I, the very first thing I did was write down everybody's name who I met and who who I knew, who who I had stories about, and I had 134 people on that list. 
Wow. Um, and, if, to and, be a, yeah. <laughs> candidly, when I'm reading it, I had a very hard time. Like, I'm like, oh, wait, I don't remember who this one is. It's like, and then, like, I would go back like 12 pages, like, oh, right, right, okay. Just because the prevalence of, of the drug use was just, it was very, very staggering to someone who's, you know, I, you know, I did party drugs in, the, in my 20s. You know, I'm 37 now, so I don't, you know, I'm just too old to do drugs anymore. But I, I just, I was like, just the, the, the depth of it all was, was, was mind blowing to me. Yeah, uh, it's it's so expansive. It really is, and it does. It, it boggles my mind how few people know about it. I mean, you as a straight guy didn't even know about the grinder. I think that it's become more popular or more 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 well known um, about the uh, hookup culture that exists in in, um, in the queer community. But uh, so you wouldn't believe how many gay people I speak to that have no idea about the crystal meth epidemic i I, i'm not some i've um part of my sobriety uh even though i'm i'm cali so uh to be clear uh uh, but but a part of my my um sobriety from harder drugs and alcohol is uh and and to be honest sex addiction is that i don't go on those hookup apps anymore and if i if i do it's for a brief moment and every few months i'll download it and just look and see who's out there and I, I ended up in a conversation recently with a 19 year old who had, who had messaged me and you know I wasn't certainly he was too young for me but uh but I said to him I said you know I was just curious he's in LA I said has anybody ever asked you to party uh before and with a capital T and he's like oh yeah people ask me that all the time and I was like oh so you know have you ever taken him up on it and he says no I, I really don't like they're always really sketchy about it. And I said, do you know what it means? And he said, well, I think I just like, you know, probably partying, right? And he didn't, he had no idea. He had no idea uh, that it meant combining crystal meth and other drugs um, like GBL and GHB with uh, often anonymous, uh, uh, often violent uh, group sex, um, dangerous, you know, unprotected usually. Um, with people, uh, often with people who are not taking care of their health. Um, so he had no idea, and and it just it just blew my mind. You know, I, I said to myself, thank, you know, thank God, I, not to pat myself on the back, but thank God somebody is putting this information out there. There's a few other people are, that are doing it with me. Uh, there's a few other journalists. Um, there's some folks over at Vice that are trying to get uh, a documentary going. Um, Patrick Strudwick, who is a British journalist, he just put out an Audible original podcast about Ed Buck, um, who was a famous uh, wealthy Democratic political donor uh, that uh, had been uh, part of the party and play community in in L.A. and uh, was overdosing uh, gay men, uh, sorry, black gay men, um, that younger black gay men that came into his house to party. And uh, a few of them overdosed from the drugs that he injected them with and died. And um, Patrick just did this incredible uh, Audible original series. Uh, sorry to use your podcast to promote his. I don't make okay. any money from it, but I think everybody <laughs> needs to listen to it. If you're you know, reading my book is one thing, but there's just there's so much more information about this and nobody knows about it. And it has been very difficult to get people to care about it. Yeah. I think that's probably the, the biggest shock of the whole thing. Aside from the fact that like, 
you know, you come from East Coast, I'm from New Jersey. You know, I know plenty of people who change lives, right? I, I, you know, the drug aspect of things that I'm accustomed to, at least on the East Coast, is someone who ends up going down the prescription pill path to heroin. The, the concept of meth, GHB, GBL as party drugs is so utterly, was so utterly foreign to me that I had no true understanding of it at all. And I guess my question for you in that regard is, do you think, you mentioned a little bit about how there there are different reasons why people get into the scene to begin with, whether it's shame of their um, sexuality or their inability to come to grips with it, something like that, that plays into the 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 downplaying of the scene, right? Do you think that if this was a heterosexual type um, environment, if this was happening more mainstream, that this would be on the news? Or is it because it is a, of a smaller sector of the population that it's just not talked about? Yeah, no, I mean, for sure, it would be it would be acknowledged as the epidemic that it is if, uh, if heterosexuals were suffering from it. Um, uh, and, and to understand why that's not happening, it really does go back to uh, a crisis around shame in the gay community and around um, being uh, made to, to be a minority, uh, be, being, being ostracized for decades, centuries. You know, there's, there's a historic um, ingrained trauma in the gay community. And what Crystal, you were talking about heroin and, and prescription pills, that makes you not feel, right? The, the crystal meth doesn't make you not feel. It numbs certain things, but what it does is it makes you feel powerful and righteous. And all of a sudden, people uh, who were nervous to be them their full selves at first, all of a sudden, oh, well, I don't, you know, I may have been skittish to have sex with other men because uh, of, you know, ha ha how long I've been told it, it was to do. And now, and now that I'm high on crystal meth, uh, you know, I, I feel, I feel proud around it. I feel pride around it. Um, mm -hmm. And at first, that's what it offers you. But then the more you do it, it gets into more compulsive uh, behaviors that are ultimately very destructive to one's mind and body. And uh, it, you know, begins to take its toll, just like any drug in excess. But where it starts is not with numbing. It actually starts with uh, instilling people with a sense of pride. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm curious the timeline on the addiction, the entire thing, because obviously it's hard to get a sense of like how many months or years this entirety took place. So from, you know, the first time dabbling with meth in New York City to, you know, ending up in rehab at the tail end of the book, what, how long did that process go through for? So I had um, dabbled. I had tried crystal meth in this uh, in the sexual setting um, uh, for I had a little binge uh, a couple weeks that lasted uh, back in 2013. Um, but all through my 20s, I was experimenting with cocaine. Uh, I'm sorry, experimenting. I was using. I was a cocaine addict. I mean, I was doing <laughs> cocaine several nights a week. Um, but <clears throat> that's another thing. You know, it, cocaine can be made to feel glamorous you know you 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 roll up a hundred dollar bill to snort your cocaine you know it's it's a it's 
uh, it's the highbrow drug, drug, right? Yeah. yeah in theory, it's a high well, it's glamorized drug. in film and yeah. television. Yeah. Very that. Yes. And um, so I had, you know, I'd been suffering from a, from stimulant addiction, but um, crystal meth, as I said, I, I dabbled with uh, in 2013, but it really was um, from 2013 to 2015 that my Adderall addiction ballooned. And then at the end of 2015 into early 2016 is when I made the transition over to Adderall. And then, I'm sorry, it's over to crystal meth, mind you, from Adderall. And uh, I was in crystal meth addiction, meaning doing it all, all day, every day for about 16 months. Wow. A whole year. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, that's just staggering to me. I, I mean, I, listen, you do a very good job of telling a story in the book. And I think that's why it seems like it's happening so fast paced. But to hear that you would go from a casual well not casual a habitual user of the drug to a dealer to a very large scale dealer inside of a year and a half is that's fucking wild yeah and i think that has to <clears throat> that has to do with partially with just who i am um uh, crystal meth <clears throat> tends to <clears throat> pardon me crystal meth tends to turn the volume up uh harking back to Ed Buck, who is now serving 30 years in prison for his crimes, he was somebody who um, had uh, inherent racism uh, in his in uh, in his personality and um, and narcissism and power and and ultimately his crystal meth addiction turned the volume up on all those things that ended up making him into an evil person. Um, I've been somebody who's been extremely ambitious and outlandish and uh, wanting to be, you know, wanting to have the spotlight on me. And yeah, there's narcissism there too. Um, wanting to feel useful, wanting to be uh, appreciated and, ha and have and feel valued by other gay people because I never felt like I fit in with them. So if I could show up uh, and be of value to them. I ended up making myself the person who everybody was calling nonstop. Um, yes, it was transactional, but it didn't feel like that, you know, to me. So um, that was my way of, uh, you know, that was how that was how my addiction manifested. Uh, I don't think that everybody turns into, you know, a tri-county crystal meth distributor <laughs> in, in in a matter of months. Um, I don't recommend it, um, and if you do. You really shouldn't be doing the drugs because it because uh, <laughs> well, isn't that that's like rule number one of being a drug dealer? Yeah. It's like don't get yeah, high on your own yeah. supply, right? Don't yeah. get high on your own supply, and and especially for crystal meth because uh, that whole looking out, peering out the 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 blinds, uh, you know, pulling back the curtain, thinking somebody's following you, shit, that is so real. Yeah, and and then um, and then actually put uh, real consequences actually where, where you act, it's not just. I'm some schmo in the middle of Illinois, you know, looking out the the window uh, because I'm paranoid on crystal meth, but actually be committing monstrous felonies every day long and and have the potentiality of of uh, the DEA or whomever building a case against you. Whew, that Truman Show syndrome <laughs> just will, will will blow up real fast. Uh, yeah, that's what happened to me. Yeah, there, you know. F correct me if I'm wrong, and at least in terms of the book, there were no consequences um legal that stemmed from your time in the world i mean you did get a couple car accidents more than a couple actually 
there was like a half a dozen, I think. <laughs> um, but when you look back at like, you know, th- you in the book, you're making rationalization and over rationalization over why you're doing certain things, right? You, you look at what you're about to do and you're like, I can do this because X, Y, Z and you're rationalizing it. Um, when you look back at it now and you look at the justifications that you are giving for each individual act that you, you know, I don't want to give specifics away. I really genuinely think everyone needs to read this fucking book, but do you look back at that now and realize that it was just mostly the addiction that was just giving you this belief that you should be doing these things? Is that like just so very evidently clear to you now? Um, (laughs) when you say these things, as in, uh, give me me an example of, uh, of your mind. When you go from casually taking drugs to, oh, I can start dealing it to my friends and I get a better price for my use, you rationalize it by, well, I get to have more fun and make sure that the people that I'm doing it with are being, you know, dosed in a safe and healthy manner. And then, oh, well, like if I just take over this additional, you know, dealer aspect of it, it's better because, again, I get a better price and I get to be even more ingrained in the community. And I want to make sure everyone's having fun and everyone's safe and everyone's doing the right thing together. So when you're looking back on on it now and the justifications that you were giving yourself at the time, I mean, that's to me, it's clear that it's just like the drugs are just like telling you that this is the right idea. But like, yeah, I don't think it's just the drugs. It, it really has to do with um I think it had to do partially with my personality type, but what the drugs do is wipe away all, um, uh, what is that called? The, uh, the risk averse, um, the, the inhibitions the, that, that, yeah. yeah, well, that, yes, yes, that, that's what, that'll work. Um, <laughs> the, the, when you're weighing consequences, and and you, you it washes away a lot of logic uh, that we operate with. Uh, you know, I should not run through this yellow light because it's going to turn red, and we don't know who's coming the other direction. Is a very sobering, logical, mundane thought that we have. And the addict is like, "What I can make it, but I can make it." You're not thinking about like, but I can. You just have the singular track mind. It's not the addict that is thinking. That because the normal normal person would think that too. It, it's just that it erases the other the other part of, of your brain that that says, "But are you sure?" <laughs> uh, yeah. So you just become uh, more carefree. Um, and I was extremely lucky. Uh, and, and then also, it wasn't all luck, but um, that I evaded uh, police. Uh, one of the reasons is that I got out uh, just in time. People, people got busted. The people that I was, uh, that were a tier beneath me, a bunch of them came and uh, got raided within a month of me going to rehab. Uh, oh. One of them, uh, whose name is Xander in the book, uh, oh. I, he and I have been in contact because he's he's still he's uh, now in house arrest, but uh, he um, he's now he had to serve ten years. Uh, Jesus, for, for, you know and. And uh, racist Benjamin, uh, who's a character in the book, uh, he's in prison for I think for another fifteen. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people yeah. did suffer consequences. Um, so uh, I found because I was able to get out uh, without suffering those particular types of consequences. Although there have been others um, that are not legal uh, in, in, in scope, but um, that's one of the reasons why. I felt the responsibility to put 
all this information out there. Um, there's not a 0% chance that I couldn't be held accountable legally in some ways um, by what I've confessed here, but I thought it was really important to put the information out there because uh, people have to wake up to, to see that this is even happening. Uh, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? I'm, I'm actually super glad you brought that up because in a lot of ways, like, I think the experience in life as you get older, you change your desires and wants change, right? And that that goes for anyone in any wake, walk of life. My life is in a completely different place than I thought it would be as early as three years ago. When you are going through your sobriety and you realize that it was so important to tell this story, which, by the way, I completely agree with you. The fact that there's not more light shown on this clear and evident problem in society is is criminal. Um, but when you're going through your sobriety and you're starting to put the story together, is there any part of you that's like, well, I shouldn't fucking do this. I'm basically copping to any number of felonies. I yeah, mean, is there was, there was, I had, a, I had a lawyer vet it. Um, he said, you should make it a novel. Um, and I considered it for a bit and uh, it just didn't feel like the right book. It's, uh, it felt like a cop-out. Um, uh, no, I, I wanted people to know what I did. Listen, it was deception and dishonesty that got me uh, into this mess. Um, because that's that, that, you, know, you start lying and you open up a can of worms and, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, and then the dr taking drugs helps you feel sh less shitty about being the liar that you started to be. And it becomes a fucking spiral uh, downward. And the only way for me to feel liberated and feel like I did my part um, and that I am showing some repentance is uh, is to tell the full truth and say, no, I, I, I did these things. Um, uh, the uh, lawyer I spoke with ultimately made it uh, seem that it would be very difficult for uh, me to be uh, uh, prosecuted. Uh, not to say that it wouldn't be impossible, but that it would be very, extremely difficult. Uh, because you know, it would be a different story had had you know I uh, robbed a bank or or beaten somebody up where there's a victim, a specific mm -hmm. victim. It's it's tougher with drug trafficking and uh, and distribution to to isolate a specific victim uh, for these things. Uh, I, you know, I was I was my own victim as well. So um, yeah, uh, I had to I had to tell the full truth, even if there were risks involved with. Yeah, I mean, it's I give you a lot of credit. I mean, it's it is a, a sense of authenticity, and I mean, to be honest, it just comes off kind of brave to be able to cop to all that transpires throughout this. I mean, it's again, I can't stress enough how fucking insane the book is. I mean, I, I, I don't consider myself a very naive person. I know the world is a fucked up place, but the sheer scope and magnitude of this story and the fact that it transpires over a 16 month period of time, I'm even more floored now than when I finished the book. Um, I'm curious from enough time has been placed between then and now that 
you're a different person now and you could probably look at back at yourself as like a character version of yourself right like jason in the book is not the jason sitting on this podcast today um when you look back and then simultaneously you know you write this book and now you're looking forward do you have a hard time like reconciling like those two different people like i know people change and people grow and people go through experiences in life but is it ever overwhelming to you do you ever like get just fucking bogged down by that like the just the sheer madness of it all yes um when i was being interviewed for an nbc article uh, about the book a couple of months ago i was asking friends who um i was asking my, my brother's girlfriend at the time uh, who's in the book named johnny and i asked johnny if, if uh, they had pictures of me back then that I could send to this journalist. But instead, Johnny came back with screenshots of <clears throat> text messages that we had exchanged. And you can just see uh, what what I'm saying in these text messages is just, I know in retrospect, is absolute bullshit. It's, it's addicts, um, uh, addict behavior, <clears throat> lying and manipulating and saying whatever they need to say to get out of trouble, to get the the um onus off of them and, and and to see that kind of, of just absolute shitty behavior to throw my family and friends under the bus uh the ethical bus if you will um when i see it like that it destroys me yeah. i've i have and it's, and it's because it's new material to me whereas all the stuff in the book i've had uh years now to process uh to edit to, to d- deeper into to, to um, relate to my therapist and, <laughs> and and be able to analyze what what that means for me. Uh, it's been a process, but but still to this day, when new material shows up, or uh, uh, I I saw some some people at my San Francisco book event uh, that were in that world with me, and they reminded me of some things that I that I used to do, especially when I was in psychosis, uh, and just how I was how I made their lives so miserable um and, and just what a pest i was and and just to remember I was like oh it's so mortifying it's so embarrassing and um so yeah in some ways i look back and it's like oh geez but then in other ways i'm still the same person and i see i see how i uh, the um pure uh you know pure-hearted uh naive guy who doesn't ever think anybody will screw them over or take advantage of them or lie to them like that's who i am in my heart still i still just believe everybody everything everybody says to me uh and 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 that's what got me in so much trouble there so i uh i have empathy for me i have empathy for for jason from 2016 uh looking back at him and 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 i can relate to him still uh in 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 a, a variety of ways but it's a mixture it's a mixture yeah. and then I'm, I'm working um yeah there was uh i do genuinely think that you are much too empathetic of a human being to be a drug dealer i mean frankly there are... <laughs> that's why I'm... i was bad at it that and an unwillingness to be violent because they go hand in hand yeah hand, and everybody kept telling me you should get a gun you gotta get a gun you have to protect yourself you have to defend yourself and i was like no no, no. i'm gonna be a non-violent drug dealer i'm i'm, I'm, uh, I'm rebranding I'm rebranding yeah. drug dealing and, and there's just no such fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are points as I'm reading the book where I'm like, motherfucker, 
bash this fucking person in. They just ripped you off. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, I'll just come back next week and give you more of the product. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you oh, mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, People took off. Uh, my, 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 my ex, who was reading this uh, an earlier version of the manuscript, we were on the beach a couple of years ago. He's reading it. And he, 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 wait a second. So you hand this guy $25,000 to go get you drugs. He disappears. And your first thought is, oh, his mother must have needed it to pay for a surgery? Like, like what the yeah. fuck is wrong with you? I'm like, As I'm I reading it. I believe that people are good. As I'm reading it, the thought I, like I'm going through that I was like genuinely mad. I was like, dude, because like even you're like wrestling with it. You're like, I should have this some guy that you mentioned beat him up or whatever. And I'm I'm wrestling with whether it's you know the the meth induced, you know, you like you said it takes dials you up to ten. So it's like, well, you're an empathetic person, so naturally they didn't rip you off. Something must have gone wrong. So you're like making a justification for it, but it blew my mind. I was like, Jesus. I was like, God, where, you know, for a community that is so tight knit, it's like everyone's just like not. There's no consequences. It was, oh, dude, I, yeah. I, I mean, aside from the fact that this is an incredibly enjoyable story, it's obviously heavy as fuck, right? Like you put a very uh, artistic spin on the story in the book. The novel is entertaining, and it's all well and good. But it's obviously horrible, horrific shit. Um, I'm I'm curious, like when the shit hits the fan. I don't want to give so much away. I, I'm a big fan of the book. It was really fucking good. Um, when the shit hits the fan and you end up in sobri- in in uh, in in rehab, what was what was that rash that realization like for you when you're sitting with yourself, having you know your your family sort of rescue you and bring you into the facility, and then even you left at one point and then end up going back. Um, what is the moment like when it all kind of crashes down on you and you realize like, this is like, I need to, I need to fix myself. Like what, what is that feeling like? Well, <laughs> I have been asked this a lot. I don't know if I ever had that aha moment. Uh, in actuality, it was, um, hmm. My aha moment came many months into sobriety uh, when I started to feel a different kind of good. Um, but my having to get off drugs and get out of trigger world and get out of the crime world was uh, because I had I had bulldozed every every avenue I could take. Uh, otherwise, I, I had nobody that trusted me. I had no uh, money left over, no credit to my name. You know, I. Uh, uh, at one point, I I shat myself. I, you know, I don't have a car. I don't have a phone. I pawned everything. You know, you just do what you have to do to be able to get your next meal at that point. And the next meal was coming from a rehab because they were my family and friends were not going to give me a dollar fifty to go to the checkers down the street uh, for fries. You know, that at that point they were they were going to starve me out. So no, uh, that's how that's that's the grip that addiction has on you you think that it is and i hear this all the time from people calling me uh i have friends will call me and say my friend is in meth addiction he wants out of it can he call you and i used to say yes now i say uh well here's what you should tell him um because they always argue with me i'm just like get the fuck out of wherever you're doing the drugs Uh, i didn't Delete the grinder, delete scruff, 
delete everybody's contacts that you're doing drugs with, that you're having sex with, that you think you care about. Move, like if you can. I mean, obviously, this is not this is not something that everybody in a different socioeconomical statuses can do. Um, but you know, if it's on the West Coast that's your problem, get the fuck out. Go to the East Coast if you can. That's when I was fortunate enough to have a family on the East Coast where it wasn't as prevalent. Um, but if you can. Uh, go to, you know, a lot of people in meth addiction, a lot of gay men in meth addiction are HIV positive. That opens up a, actually a lot of uh, avenues for, for people uh, to seek recovery. If you can get into rehab, I tell people go as, for, to rehab as long as you can. Uh, most relapse happens within the first three to six months. Uh, there are scientific reasons for that. Um, it has to do with the chemicals and the dopamine in your brain. I can, I'm not articulate enough or, or knowledgeable enough to be able to uh, articulate them to you. But uh, I can tell you that my advice is always get the fuck out of that climate for as long as you can. And everybody argues with me. Well, I've got so much going on. I'm doing auditions and my, I hope my life is really important here and it's going to fuck my whole life. I'm going to lose my job. It's like, girl, you don't have a life right now. Uh, you, you, you think you do. This is not a life. You know, you, you are an addict. You are killing yourself slowly or quickly, some of you. I was. Uh, get the hell out and start over um, for as long as you can. And people want to argue that with me. They're, they're, no, no, I can't. I can't. Yeah. You can, you got it. It's the only choice. I mean, I, listen, I get it. I think in a lot of ways, it's what's nice about the book and I think what's nice about having and fostering these conversations is shedding the light on the problem and the more people that talk about it the more people that know about it the more likelihood is that someone who's going through these experiences can feel like they can get the help that they need unfortunately it's not always that easy you know it's it's yeah Um, our resources though there are LGBT centers in a lot of big cities that would be the first place to go that would be the first place to, to reach out to. Um, I, I was even able to, uh, w- when I moved back to LA last year, I went to LGBT Center and they connected me with a, an incredible mental health um, uh, therapist uh, that, that uh, I did 16 sessions of somatic therapy, which really was a different angle um, that really helped me grow uh, and, and be able to combat some of the uh, sustaining issues that were born out of my addiction regarding uh, a connection to intimacy and sexuality and uh, and a disconnect that formed from me connecting um, intimacy and sex exclusively with stimulant drugs. Uh, to be able to disconnect those two is very hard for people. And that's where a lot of people will also see relapse. So um, there are resources, is what I'm saying. LGBT centers are a great place to start. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So I, I kind of have a similar feeling to like in, in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you always had like this, this vision for your life, right. Of whether it was going to, uh, you know, uh, include a, some level of fame or success or financial wealth, whatever it was, however you articulate in the book, I can relate to that. For some reason, I've always had this sort of irrational comfortability with myself and belief that my success has always been assured. Um, when you go through something like that, that you went through, that probably gets stripped away from you a bit. Um, having gone through the process of sobriety and the book writing and sitting here today, what do you look at in terms of like what your own hopes and dreams are for your own future? 
Um, yeah, so in the first few years, uh, the, I you, you have a reset and you can, of sobriety, you have a reset and you can choose whatever direction you want to go in. And I, I started asking myself, well, you know, do I, do I want to be a private investigator? Do, do I want to, do I want to be, uh, it was something that, that crossed my mind at one point. And you can, you can investigate whether, whether these things are, are, uh, are tenable. Um, and ultimately, uh, what I realized is that just because I fucked off and, uh, and got detoured from my path, what I really wanted to do was be an artist, uh, to be a, a performer, to be a storyteller. Um, so I got right back. As soon as I got the book out of me, and I knew that there would be an audience for it, once I, meaning I, I found a publisher, as soon as I signed that book deal, I decided, okay, I'm moving back to Los Angeles. I'm going back into acting training uh, after being away from it for 15 years. I'm warming those muscles back up. I'm going to get back into auditioning. I'm going to write another book. I'm going to get turn this book into a TV show. And I've been with, with the same energy that I approached becoming a crystal meth uh, distributor, but with, the, with way more clarity and a lot more passion and zeal. And uh, and clear-headedness. I am now tackling all of those dreams uh, with, and, and I gave myself permission to have them again. You know, yes, I'm not 18 uh, and wide-eyed like I once was. I'm 37, and uh, and I that doesn't mean that my life is over. Just you know, I, in fact, yeah. it, it couldn't be. It could be more not over. Right? You know, I survived. I survived. I got out. Uh, so. I would be telling myself short to not go for those dreams. So I'm out yeah. here. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm out in LA trying to make all those things happen. Well, I love that. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think there is this fallacy and whether it's social media induced or what have you that, you know, once you're 30, it's like any hopes and dreams that you have in your life is over. The time for dream chasing is, is done and that's fucking bullshit. My life is in a fucking 10,000 mile better place today than it was five minutes ago, let alone five years ago. And, and you know, there's... people, will, people will, will want you to be there too. They, 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 totally. because they, and a lot of people settle, um, and, and for being content or even just disgruntled and, uh, and they settle for that. And I was working an office job in Philadelphia and the people there, and I get, they get, they, oh, your little writing project. And they would demean my, my process of writing the book. And, and they kept trying to convince me to become partners in this real estate enterprise. And I was just like, that's not for me. And they're like, but it's, but you know, it's something you can rely on. You know, you, you don't want to be going out there. You're way too old to be going out to LA. Well, you're going to move out to LA and make it in your, in your late thirties. Give me a break. Like, and I would get this kind of negative um, uh, response to, to expressing my dreams. And you, you know, people hear that, and even somebody with me, with with my um, often blind ambition, um, uh, even somebody like me, that that made me feel downtrodden and and um, and defeated at times. And I would have to step away and be like, no, 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 that's just their story that they're that they're projecting onto you. You know, you 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 can make the choice to go live the way you want to live at any given point. Absolutely, I don't think there's anything wrong with blind ambition. In fact, I think. Were it not for my own irrational ambition and confidence, I would never have achieved anything in my life. If, if you don't at 
your base level believe that you can accomplish anything you want, you will accomplish nothing. If you have yeah. zero self-belief, all you are filled with is self-doubt and any inability to drive that away from yourself is going to inevitably lead to you being like those people who are telling you, oh, you can't write a book or, oh, you can't start a podcast or you can't become a photographer. And all of those things couldn't fucking be any further from the truth. I think it's, 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 uh, it, it is a mental health silent epidemic in, in the world because so often we're told that we can't do things when we have a fucking supercomputer in our pocket. We could do literally whatever the fuck we want. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I, I knew, you know, meeting you that you, you would agree. <laughs> yeah. But yes, uh, 100%. Um, I'm curious, is there possibilities for Tweaker World to be adapted into a TV show or a movie, both of which need to happen? I, I mean, yeah. like, I know it's yeah. it's weird having someone who you don't know, you know, commentate about your story and your life. It's just fucking insane and if you're listening to the podcast today go buy the book immediately read the book you're going to read it in three days like i did i fucking crushed the thing and it's just staggering so please tell me that there is the possibility that this ends up on on netflix or, or something yeah um uh, we'll, we'll see about what network but but let's hope um let's hope that does happen i have been i have a writing partner that i've been developing it with for a few months um we found a, an incredible producing partner whose name I'm not ready to uh, state. Uh, but if we, uh, on the other side of this writer's strike, right now we're frozen because of the writer's strike. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of the writer's strike, we intend to be shopping it around. Uh, but we have a vision for how it becomes a TV series in, in a way that um, Orange is the New Black uh, told, you know, used Piper's story of how she got into prison to introduce us to uh, a colorful cast of vibrant individuals uh, with all of their own nuanced stories, backstories, and histories. That's what I'm aiming, that's what I would like to do with Tweaker World, is, is not just, not just uh, let, it, let the next iteration of it tell Jason's story, but allow Jason's story to just be the entry point into a bunch of I think stories. that's a tremendous idea. I think that is... 10 out of 10 idea. Great, great idea. Yay, I, yeah, I'm so genuinely, hope, I'm genuinely hopeful for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, listen, I, I'm a big fan of the book. I, I think that you do a, a great service with this book in highlighting an absolute atrocity that is taking place uh, in the LGBTQ uh, community right now. Um, it's, it's my hope that you look at whatever success of this book, whether it's, you know, number of copies sold, number of conversations had, you know, boil it down to if you can get this out and save one kid's life, two kids lives, whatever, it's a success. It, it Don't let it be a dollar figure. Don't let it be a number of copies sold. I think it's such an important conversation to be having. Um, and I'm, I'm immensely appreciative that you were uh, willing to come on and, and discuss it with me today. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, can, can I read the very last, um, yes, please. Two, the very last two sentences of the book, please. At this very moment, an impressionable young queer is on a smartphone app and is being asked, you want a party? Someone must tell them what that means, what that really fucking means. And 
my my anecdote from earlier about going on Grinder and that nineteen year old messaging me uh, was such solid proof of that. He had no idea, and so you're a hundred percent right. If I can uh, inform one person that needs that, or or help somebody who is dealing with um, a loved one that's in this addiction of, of even just how to understand what they're talking about and what they're experiencing mentally with with the, the degradation that happens to one's mind on this drug, just to be able to, to maneuver uh, these relationships better. Yeah, that's why I wrote it. So uh, thank you for honing in on, on that. I, I really hope it, it can uh, inspire some folks and, and educate them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, truly, I, I hope everyone who's hearing this today goes out, picks up a copy of this book. I think it's a it's a it's a fucking unbelievable read. The fact that it's a true story, the fact that you experience this, the fact that you're alive to be having this conversation, and it's just uh, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible story. Um, and I'm super super happy that uh, our mutual friend, the one and only Mrs. Jacqueline Paris, put us together to have this conversation. Yes. Um, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. This was uh, a real pleasure for me, a real treat. Um, I'm a big fan of of your work, and and I uh, I'm looking forward to uh, whatever the next chapter of your book has to hold. Awesome. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed speaking with you. My pleasure. Take care.